You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Uh, today I'm talking to Rosemary Hill, a contributing editor at the paper, whose books include a biography of Pugin, a history of Stonehenge, and most recently, Time's Witness, History in the Age of Romanticism. She has a piece in the latest issue on Mount Vesuvius and its role in the imaginations of 18th and 19th century tourists, politicians, artists, scientists and others. It's a review of Volcanic Vesuvius in the Age of Revolutions by John Brewer. Hello, Rosemary, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, and thank you for asking me. So Vesuvius appears to have last erupted in, in March 1944, not long after the Allied landings in Italy during the Second World War. And Norman Lewis recalled a Neapolitan saying something along the lines of, that's all we needed. The current period of quiescence is the longest for several hundred years, that between 1630 and 1944 it erupted more or less continuously, sometimes more violently than others. But the edge of the crater has been a tourist destination since the 18th century. I see you can get a bus most of the way up now, but it, it was more arduous in the old days, wasn't it? Well, yes. I mean, you had to go up. I mean, in the 18th century, when people started to go, I suppose you just climbed. By the time John Brewer's story begins, it is what we would call a curated experience. So everybody's kind of set up with mules and guides. And by the time when you left Naples, you got funneled as a tourist down to Resina, which is the only sort of jumping off point. And once people got to Resina, they were instantly surrounded by people selling them absolutely everything, mule hire guides. And it was pretty overwhelming for people. But it was quite a formula. You um, went up to about 600 metres above sea level. And that was where there was what was called the hermitage, which for a hermitage was incredibly busy and populated, full of so-called hermits who were the very opposite of withdrawn types living in solitude. So basically it was an inn. And everybody gathered there, got their first, got glasses or indeed bottles of Lacrima Christi, which is the famous local wine, um, and set about working out how they were going to do their ascent um, with the help of the local guides. Um, and as I say, by, by that time, it was a pretty... Um, well-trodden path. And at the heart of John Brewer's book is um, one of the visitors' books, two of the visitors' books that have survived from the 1820s, um, which are, of course, in one sense, absolutely fascinating because they bring you right close to the experience of these people so long ago. But on the other hand, what they show you is that what people write in visitors' books hasn't changed much. And in fact, it's and some of it is a bit like a very early formerly known as Twitter, X, thread with people, well, somebody saying they'd written a poem on, on the back of a mule and somebody else saying, well, it was a stupid place to write a poem, wasn't it? Um, deliberately misunderstanding. And people, of course, complaining and saying it was all a bit of a letdown. So there are, um, and then people coming back and seeing their own earlier entries. And indeed, um, one man who let, takes the opportunity to advertise his business as um, a trust maker, and so there, as, as now, it doesn't matter how fantastic the spectacle, how awe-inspiring it's supposed to be, there'll be somebody there with a selfie stick thinking it's all about them. And that, that question of it being a spectacle and inspiring awe or not is connected to the, the 18th century idea of, of the sublime, right? And the idea that presumably a little earlier, the idea that there would be something beautiful in an erupting volcano would have been odd. Well, I think those ideas of the sublime, which go back much earlier into European philosophy and then in Britain, were 
encapsulated by by Burke, that idea that it is kind of it's a combination of the idea of pity and terror from the Greek idea of catharsis, but also with beauty. So that there is we all know this. There is something thrilling in danger, which is. I mean, things can be aesthetically very pleasing at the same time as they are terrible and terrifying. And it was a time, a period towards the end of the 18th century, when people were beginning to um, consider the psychology of perception, as we would call it, and to wonder whether the same causes always produced the same effects in people. If you could, as Burke sort of suggests, that certain things, symmetry and smoothness, and these things are always going to strike everybody as beautiful. But then, of course, people come back quite quickly and say, no, it's not all in, as Hume thought, the qualities are not all intrinsic in the object. They are partly the response of the beholder. So then, of course, with the sublime, the question is, how frightening is too frightening? Um, and I think going up Vesuvius when it was sort of between eruptions, there were quite quite a number that came close together at the end of the 18th century. Um, I wouldn't have done it, but uh, you know what people are like. So um, the idea of going up over all this hot ash and um, smoke, and indeed many people... Um, mostly, not all, but mostly, it has to be said, men actually insisted on being lowered into um, into the crater, and um, which was very dangerous. But um, they mostly got out alive. And one of those men who you, you write about in the piece, William Hamilton, who you say did more than anyone to further volcanology as an academic study. And he made the ascent well, maybe he made it more than once, but you describe him making the ascent in 1767 with a small group of other men. And how did that go? Well, Hamilton, who, of course, was fated to be known as um, Emma Hamilton's cuckolded husband, but was actually a very interesting man. And he, you know, he made the ascent many, many times because he went to Naples as our sort of ambassador. Well, it wasn't quite the title, but that's basically what he was. Um, and he was a great aesthete. He was a typical, his posting has been described as a 35-year grand tour because he was there really for the art. But once he got there, he became fascinated by Vesuvius and the volcano. And he went up and down many, many times. He collected specimens. He had many interesting and indeed groundbreaking ideas about volcanology. But on this particular occasion, when he went up with these two other chaps um, with their picnic, which was quite a usual thing to do, and they went into the crater, um, which was very, very hot. So they decided to take all their clothes off and have the picnic there rather than do the sensible thing, of course, which would be to come out and have it outside. But no, this image of uh, enlightenment gentlemen sitting round inside this burning crater with their lunch in the nude. It's quite peculiar. And he married Emma Hamilton, well, she was his second wife or a later wife, anyway, that they, they married well, in the 1790s, didn't they? But he was married before. Yes, and his first wife, Catherine, who was um, a much more, in some ways, one might say more interesting person, but she suffered from asthma and, well, what was described as asthma, we don't quite know. She may have had TB, I don't know. But she had delicate health. And so Hamilton's excuse for wanting this posting was that it would benefit her health, which it did. But really, of course, what he wanted to do was to um, be in Italy and look at classical art and remains. But Catherine was um, 
a, a serious musician. I mean, she was she played the harpsichord beautifully and not just as a sort of lady ambassador's wife hobby. She was seriously good. And so when they were imposed, everybody who was anybody came to visit them. Goethe came to visit them. Mo and the young Mozart came to visit them. And there's a wonderful account, which is an extraordinary glimpse of Hamilton's home life, of the 14-year-old Mozart playing the harpsichord with Vesuvius erupting in the background, sort of giant explosions. Um, so Catherine, I think Catherine, uh, and it did in fact help her health and she died, but she lived longer when he went. Horace Walpole, who was a great friend of Hamilton, said, we know he says it's for her health, it won't do her any good, but it did. Um, and then of course, in his, Walpole also was a very shrewd and slightly spiteful observer, suggested that William Hamilton married Emma because she just looked like all his vases and he kind of absentmindedly collected her um, as he went along. I mean, the question though, of those vases, so was he, as it were, picking up Roman vases from Pompeii or...? Pompeii and Herculaneum and also, I mean, there was by then quite a sophisticated um, trade. There was a great a fashion developed out of the excavations at Pompeii and Herculaneum. And it's that extraordinary moment, which is at the sort of pivot, if you like, of, of John Brewer's book, where art and science have not yet divided and romanticism is not yet fully Gothic. You can have very romantic Greek ideas and very romantic, um, well, Keats is Grecian urn. There you are. I mean, um, so yes, Hamilton was a great collector and he had a world-class collection. He used to refer to visitors to my lumber room, he would say in, you know, um, humble brag. Um, it was completely world-class collection. And People came and visited and they saw these things and it set a whole... It wasn't only Hamilton, of course, it was Stuart and Revit and others, but a great fashion for interior decoration and design in this very light um, Pompeian style and also, of course, dress in which Emma posed famously in her attitudes with her dress suitably moistened to cling to every outline. Um, but then also... Because, as I say, the, the sort of division between art and science was just, was all kind of molten culturally. And at home in England, Josiah Wedgwood, who had set up his factory, which he called Etruria in Staffordshire, and it was Wedgwood who really invented the idea of the division of labour in production. He set up the first ever production line so that different people did different parts of the process. And he started to imitate these, the most famous of these vases. So you have an extraordinary combination that probably could never have happened before or since of art and history and classicism and romanticism and commercialism and industry and fashion. Um, so it was a wonderful moment. And that was really his sort of his legacy because his own uh, studies, which he published in this very, very lavish volume, and that it was kind of, it was, his, uh, his researches were very important, but the way that he presented them was really the kind of the last of those great illustrated books intended for gentlemen's libraries. And for most gentlemen, not that interested in volcanoes, a lot of Hamilton's friends got very irritated with this volcano obsession he went on and on about. Um, but equally, those who were interested found that this very artistic presentation wasn't good enough. They needed something much better observed and more detailed in the drawing. And we'll come to that shift to the more scientific way of looking at it a bit later, I think. But the 
his 35-year Grand Tour, so-called, came to an end in 1800. And was that because of the the French Revolutionary Wars that the Spanish court at Naples was no longer there and he had to go home to England? Well, no, he got himself into all sorts of diplomatic trouble and he was also in a lot of debt. So one way or another, it was a sad end to what had been a distinguished career. But, I mean, the politics of Naples at this time were extremely volatile, I should say, perhaps appropriately. And as Brewer makes clear in his book, um, the kinds of people who, I mean, in one level, tourism went on. Tourism always goes on. I mean, all through the French Revolution, the theatres in Paris never closed. Um, So some things go on. But when you have across Europe, the closest there had yet been to a world war, never had so many countries in such close proximity been involved in a single great war, Um, it gets quite dangerous. So obviously the English didn't come for a long time. Um, And Hamilton, in one of the coups that took place in Naples, um, got himself just too involved, I think, politically, and so was um, discredited and had to live. And and there were all the debts, so he had to leave. And at the end of his life, as indeed ultimately the end of Emma's, was pretty sad. And what happened to the contents of his lumber room? Did he take that back to England or did he have to sell it to pay off his debts? Or? He did. Well, I'm, um, he, his great collection, it was said, was sold to the British Museum. Right. How much for was disputed. And I'm not in a position to tell you where it all went. Okay. <laughs> and so that, that question of that during those, well, the Napoleonic Wars, that, as you said, it became... Very difficult for most English people, British people, to travel to the continent. Very, very difficult to travel to the. I mean, there was a whole generation that grew up. I mean, Hamilton left Naples in eighteen hundred, but the Revolutionary Wars, of course, went on until eighteen fifteen, um, became the Napoleonic Wars, um, and so there was a whole generation that grew up unable for the most part, to, to even if you could afford a grand tour, it was just out of the question. And it's really out of that, out of the fact that the British had to stay at home and therefore looked, started to look more at their own landscape and their own ruined abbeys. They began to see, uh, to take much more interest in their own national history and their own national landscape. And out of that and the debate with Burke about the sublime, you get this new idea, which is the picturesque, which is something between um, the beautiful and the terrible, something that's, it's all the things that the um, Wordsworth and Coleridge take up in the lyrical ballads. It's all about the humble, the slightly broken, um, the power of association, which cuts right through the middle of this debate about, you know, is it something that's intrinsic to the object or is it something that's only in the eye of the beholder? Um, No, it's something that happens when you um, encounter an object or a scene or a certain kind of weather and you bring your own experience and your own culture to it and it will have certain effects are sort of predictable. Autumn is always going to be sad. A wide view is soul expanding. There are all these kind of tick box exercises that it develops into. But in its original, um, in the original debates between Uvedale Price and Payne Knight, um, it's a very subtle theory about Pevsner, later on, Nicholas Pevsner discussing it says, you know, it's, he says it's it's psychoanalytic, and he doesn't want to say that because he knows that's so anachronistic. But um, Hamilton with um, Payne Knight, both of them very much sort of classical gents, um, 
produced a rather scandalous work on the worship of Priapus, which wasn't actually... I mean, obviously, it was a bit scandalous, but what they were interested in was how these forms of phallic worship were the same in different places and what what was the connection. This is the beginning of... Uh, it's an age of, of empiricism and scepticism, which is looking beyond any kind of straightforward Christian explanation for anything. <laughs> so I'm going to skip back slightly to that, that question of this the, the generational splits and the, what happened to people who would once upon a time have travelled to, to Europe and then they weren't able to. And then, as it were, with the Battle of Waterloo, suddenly they were able to again. And people like Byron and, and Shelley, who sort of almost as, as soon as they were able to, went shooting off to the to the south of Europe. You mentioned the Shelleys in your piece, and they climbed Vesuvius towards the end of 1818. And you quote Percy Shelley's rather unpleasant and perhaps not especially observant remarks about the local population. Though um, he did apparently distribute his loose change among them. But he was much better at describing the, the lava flows than the people. And he wrote about them at length in a letter to, to Thomas Love Peacock, where he said things like, the lines of the boiling flood seem to hang in the air, and it is difficult to believe that the billows which seem hurrying down upon you are not actually in motion. And those, some of the, well, not those descriptions, actually the letters are rather better than the poems, I think, in describing the, describing the lava. But the, the, the volcano made its way into Prometheus Unbound and the descriptions of the cave of Demogorgon and so on. And in that, he, he wrote, the, the nations echo round, shaken to their roots as do the mountains now. And actually, that's about avalanches rather than volcanoes. But this idea that the erupting volcano was an image of the, of the French Revolution and its aftermath, and as a metaphor for the political upheavals, it was sort of unavoidable, really, wasn't it? And cartoonists and all sorts of other people took it as a, as a metaphor for... Yes, it was absolutely irresistible. And once you had got away from an earlier idea that it was, you know, it was the wrath of God or whatever, but an age that was fascinated by, by Pliny, um, was therefore interested in it. But yes, the symbolism was tremendous. And again, if you're involved, in fact, Shelley does say, having said how ghastly all these frightful peasants are, um, but he does then interestingly, because um, I looked at that letter, um, he describes them as picturesque which is absolutely the point, that they can't be beautiful, they can't be sublime, um, but they can be picturesque. I mean, I think he, that he was struggling for the nicest thing he could say about them, really, because he obviously was simply appalled. And they'd um, done what guides often do in remote places with people who don't speak the language, which is to sort of threaten to just put... Um, it was Claire who had to be carried in a litter, and they just kind of put her down on the road and said, right, well, you know, it'll be a bit more expensive if you want us to get her back to base. Um, and he was horrified by this. Well, reasonably horrified by this. But um, Hamilton, interestingly, was much more um, sympathetic, although he also was you know, a public school gent. But he, because he actually lived there, he pointed out that they weren't... Uh, visitors, tourists would say, oh, they're just all hanging around doing nothing. And he'd say, no, 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 these are men who are paid by the day. And so they're waiting to be hired. And he understood very much more about how the um, farming worked, how the food worked. And he resisted this idea that they were a load of feckless do-nothings. Do, um, do On the other hand, of course, as everywhere all over the world since time and tourism began, um, they spotted the main chance. And they were very poor. And they took as much money off people as they could. Yeah, and good luck to them. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. I mean, they were living, after all, they were living with the volcano. And they had every year um, the liquid 
liquefaction of the blood of San Gennaro um, in the cathedral at Naples. And that's supposed to indicate that they will be safe that year from the volcano. So there was a lot of anxiety about whether it was going to liquefy. That Hamilton was not um, at all sympathetic to. He thought that was a lot of superstitious nonsense. But you can see if he did live there, you would, you know, you'd cling on to any hopeful indications. And there was very little else that could tell you. I mean, Hamilton employed somebody to make observations of the crater and to see, you know, how the cloud changed, how the mouth of the volcano changed before eruptions and so on. But, um, still, I mean, it's still very difficult. People, vol proper um, scientific volcanologists can't really predict when a volcano is going to blow. And the interest that Hamilton had in the in the ordinary people who, who lived around the volcano and, and around him, and that, I mean, there was an... It, an interest, a growing interest in history or among historians as well, wasn't there, in the lives of ordinary people in the past at this time, that it wasn't only about kings and emperors. They began to, there was more what you might call social history now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was the sort of, I mean, you can see it beginning in the middle of the 18th century and then speeding up as romanticism, a huge phenomenon, but we kind of know what we mean by it, uh, was really getting underway because... Pliny was interesting, the classical past was interesting, but once excavations began at Pompeii and Herculaneum and also at Diocletian's palace, um, and people began to see the everyday lives of people. And there was a growing interest in um, Dr. Johnson, who's always rather rude about David Hume, says, you know, these vast canvases, history, which is just about battles and politicians. Um, it's got very little, to, he says, to offer um, to ordinary people in their private lives. And people were beginning to want a history that offered them something in their private lives. So once you began to see in Pompeii streets, houses, the vases, the, 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 um, all those details. And it was Hamilton's interest in all that, I think, that makes him, when he was famously known as the modern Pliny, that he, that's what made him modern, um, that he wasn't interested in it merely as in relation to the classical past. He was interested in it in what we would call a sort of sociological, social history kind of way. And of course, for people like Madame Nestal, who came and whose novel Corinne was one of the absolute practically set texts, if you went to Vesuvius, um, you know, she'd had, she was in exile, she was political exile. She was very nearly, um, didn't get out of the terror alive. And so for her to see the aftermath of a catastrophe that had wiped out a whole city. Um, she could really understand something of that um, and, and feel it very powerfully. And that feeling, of course, is transmitted through Corinne. And that sort of interest in the the way in which Pompeii and the way that the ash preserved it and so on. I mean, we still have that now. But I mean, there's that news quite recently about a, they appear to have discovered a picture of a pizza and the other, look, they were eating pizzas in Naples 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and obviously it... <laughs> Yes, fancy. All those years ago, people had the idea of putting some tomatoes on a piece of hot bread. Um, yeah, well, that wouldn't have been tomatoes. Oh, yes. oh, no, fair point. Yes, OK. Veg bread and vegetables. Bread and vegetables. Bread and, <laughs> bread and vegetables. But, yeah bringing the past closer. It's also, of course, the, the great moment when you don't, you begin to pick apart the Enlightenment view of history, which is one of the things that Johnson has against Hume, the idea that um, it is a story of steady progress. So when you find out that people in Pompeii had pizza and they had houses and they had um, beds and they had ordinary things, this narrative of steady improvement is challenged. And that was what was happening 
again with the picturesque, again with people getting interested in the Middle Ages, thinking that the past was not just um, just you know what people did before they were as clever as us, but it was a real living place and that really, I mean, the, the romantics and the antiquaries were arguing that the only constant is change. And some things, of course, do improve and discoveries are made, but other things perhaps become less good. Yeah, absolutely. I perhaps should have talked about this when we talked about Wedgwood earlier, but looping back to, to Wedgwood and their, the mass production of, of pots and this idea, I suppose, of that history was becoming more democratic is that I don't know if that's the right word exactly but this in, interest in the, the lives of ordinary people at the same time what Wedgwood was doing was producing these vases that you didn't have to go on a grand tour and pay a lot of money for an antique Roman vase you could get a, a modern not a copy exactly but you could get your own modern version of it one question about that is how much did a Wedgwood vase cost and who who owned them I mean how many how many houses in in Britain would have would have had Wedgwood pots in them. Oh, it was still at that stage. It was still a very expensive thing to have. When you know, when you copied the Warwick vase and things like that. I mean, these were very expensive things. But gradually, of course, um, Wedgwood china um, did become much more accessible. And those um, the blue the the, the basaltware, which was black, um, and the Wedgwood blue, which we still call Wedgwood blue, with these um, cameo-like covers, um, figures. Uh, and then it went all the way, I suppose, if you wanted to go right down the economy. Keats was very keen on Tassie's gems, which you could buy. They had a shop in Leicester Square. And these were imitation paste cameos. Um, and, and he liked those, and Keats didn't have any money. Um, so within the scope of anybody who was in the consuming classes, there would be some objects that you could buy that were a participation in this great um, romantic classical moment. And similarly, if you couldn't afford to go to Naples and see Vesuvius yourself, you could go to Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens or the, or the theatre and see a dramatic reconstruction of that. Oh, you could see Vesuvius erupting all over the place. I mean, it was, of course, because partly because it co this period coincided with, there was still in London anyway, the theatres, the patent theatres where you could perform spoken drama because there was still censorship. Um, there were only, only Drury Lane and Covent Garden were the main ones. And they periodically burnt down. And every time they were rebuilt, um, they were built bigger because you couldn't just build, you couldn't have another theatre. You had to have that theatre, so you had to make it bigger in order to cram in more people. Um, and so it, acting of the sort that, you know, um, the Kembles and Mrs. Siddons had done was completely invisible. So you then had to rely, I mean, it was the age that invented amazing stage effects and scenery um, and lighting effects. And with hindsight, of course, you see that they, every, everything is just working its way towards uh, photography. And Daguerre, who invented, later on was part of the invention of photography, but he invented the diorama um, in Paris and in London, where you sat in a revolving drum and the scenery was transparent and the, there were uh, mirrors and lights and things. So you would seem to see Vesuvius erupt or you would seem to see Hannibal crossing the Alps um, or moonlight over Holyrood. That was um, another popular favourite. And Vesuvius erupting, of course, was a fantastic spectacle. Um, and certainly sometimes um, sparks got caught in the scenery. There was at least one fire that was attributed, at least, to an explosion of a model of Vesuvius. And then if you went to Vauxhall Gardens, you could see it every night. 
an enormous model of Vesuvius exploding. So, of course, for some people, it was all, um, as always happens with these things, um, people then began to think it was all a bit vulgar and just a tourist trap, and they weren't interested. But quite a lot of people went along and went, ooh, when it went off um, and, and were very um, pleased by it. So Vesuvius as a spectacle in itself and also as a re- reproductions of it as a spectacle. Yes. In London. I mean, presumably other cities as well. I mean, would they have had them in, I don't know. Oh, yes. Um, they were quite popular in Naples, which seems slightly odd, given that you had the real thing, but because it wasn't going off the whole time. So, um, yes, there were. And um, the there was more than one opera. Um, once, As I say, once it stopped being... Um, simply um, a classical text in Pliny, once people began to get interested in what had actually happened, then L'Ultima Giorno di Pompei was a great kind of topic for, there were many popular operas and dramas about this, um, with people, um, the the inhabitants all kind of rushing around um, on the verge of destruction, and then the scenery department going berserk. um, and, And recreating the catastrophe. That was very popular. But at the same time, or more or less at the same time, people were becoming more interested in it as a, well, what you describe in the piece, this sort of shift from spectacle to specimen, that they were beginning to study it, not as a, were beginning to study it, in fact. It was... Yes. I mean, it, having said, you know, it was this wonderful image, it was a wonderful metaphor. Um, Goethe, who, of course, it's Goethe who originally said, see Naples and die, but he didn't, which came Later on, as many people went to Naples and got malaria, it came to seem rather a sinister thing to say. But of course, what he meant was once you've seen Naples, you know, there's nothing that you can just die and feel that your life has been completely fulfilled. And he found the spectacle of it um, from the Hamilton's residence, this extraordinary sight of red hot lava running through completely peaceful fields, gave him all sorts of ideas that reappear um, in Faust. But while that was happening, at the same time, gradually people were beginning to develop new um, ideas about what was beginning to be geology. Because the thing was that although um, Hamilton and others were very, um, Dolomir and others, were very important in the study of Vesuvius because they did a lot of drawings, they did a lot of measurings, they collected a lot of samples of what were rather charmingly called the fruits of Vesuvius, all these different lumps of lava and petrified um, stone and things. In the end, you just collect endless examples. Um, You can deduce a certain amount from that. But what people really were beginning to want to know was, you know, was... Did the mountain cause the volcano? Did the volcano cause the mountain? And the bigger question behind all that, especially as um, people were not so committed to a purely Christian view of the world, was, well, how old is the world? How do we begin to work out what the history of the earth is? Um, And that, of course, was a huge problem for which Vesuvius in particular, but volcanoes in general, were a very good subject for study. So yes, exactly, as you say, it went from being just kind of, woo, isn't it amazing, to being, well, you know, that's one, but how does it relate to the others? And what does it mean about the history of the Earth? You mentioned just now uh, Dolomir. So maybe talk a bit about him and who he was. Well, he was an early falconologist, um, French aristocrat, um, who had who just had a passion like um, 
like Hamilton, just had a passion for um, minerals and volcanic specimens and so on, had a very narrow escape in the terror, um, lost all his money, though fortunately not his head, um, but then discovered, unlike many of the dispossessed aristocrats, that his hobby was actually useful. So he found that he had, as you said, a métier um, to be a volcanologist at the Conseil des Mines. Um, and But he still had a very difficult time because he'd been brought up, educated by the Knights of Malta and the um, Napoleon, who took him with him uh, on the Great Egyptian ex Expedition with Dunant, um, thought it would be great if um, Dolomir negotiated a treaty with the Knights of Malta, uh, which he did. But of course, the French didn't honour it. Um, and so Dolomir fell foul of the Knights of Malta, which was a mistake, and he ended up in the most imprisoned in the most terrible conditions. Um, and probably his early death was probably a result of, um, of his imprisonment. But what two things that are interesting about that. First of all, that while he was in prison, Joseph Banks in England heard about him and his situation and mounted a campaign to get him released, which was ultimately successful, I think. Um, but all the way through these 25 years of continental war, the links between antiquaries and natural philosophers, what John Brewer calls savant, which is the French word, and it's jolly useful um, for linking all these people in different fields which were not then differentiated, um, there was huge communication and refugee um, scholars were welcomed in England and even when England was at war with France. And so there was this great international network of knowledge sharing that went on by hook or by crook throughout this period. So Dolomir was recognised and indeed the Dolomites are named after him. Which does seem... Slightly extraordinary. So, well, what else were you going to call? I wonder what they were called before. Well, <laughs> what were they called before? But the um, because there's. Well, the, you said that you that they were called the Pale Mountains. Pale Mountains. Well, that was one thing I found them. I suppose well, they were just the mountains. That yeah, there's a because I suppose if you live near them, those are the mountains. They didn't need a separate name. Yes, those over there. I mean. That's again, it's part of the same thing, isn't it? If you just want to see those mountains over there, it's one thing. If you're starting to think about them in relation to other mountains, um, or if you're starting to think about Vesuvius in relation to other volcanoes, um, then you're going to have to think, you're going to have to distinguish them, if only for practical purposes. And there's the mineral dolomites, which the dolomites are made of or full of. So I think it went that way around. Was I always imagined that dolomite was called dolomite because it came from the mountains, but actually the mineral took the name from the scientist and then it was passed on to the mountains and that. Well, yes, I mean, I had absolutely no idea. And it's one of the very interesting things in John Brewer's book because um, he has two short biographies of volcanologists um, which sort of sit within the, the bigger framework of the book and they're both very interesting. And actually that question of how, rather than just accepting those are the, the mountains that are, I mean, in a sense, this is what you've been describing happening with volcanoes as well, that the process of looking at the Dolomites differently and identifying them as Dolomites rather than just morals. <laughs> yes. And that similar thing happened with, with Vesuvius and that discovery. Why, as you, as you put it, does the volcano make the mountain? Does the mountain make the volcano? And what are these things anyway? And that actually that, because you say in the piece that there's a whole line of there's a line of volcanoes in Italy from Etna through through the Aeolian Islands, which are still active and 
and Vesuvius is still active, but then as you go north is to Monte Amiata, which has been extinct for a long time, and clearly something, well, we say clearly now, something has been happening there, that as you go north, the volcanoes, there's this line of volcanoes becoming increasingly extinct, and what that says about the Earth and how it was made. Yes. Well, I mean, people were very stuck about this because, I mean, Newtonian physics opened up space. That was so everyone had had understood that. But what you did about time and George Scroop, who became um, a very um, distinguished volcanologist, having seen the eruption of 1822, and he just thought it was so amazing um, that he devoted his life um, to studying volcanoes. And he says in his great book, um, Extinct Volcanoes of France, he says at one point, time, 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 that's the problem. How are we going to do this? Because he's looking at um, the extinct volcanoes that you're talking about and thinking, well, if these things were already dead and extinct and cold by the time the Romans came, the world must be older. I mean, at that stage, the official age of the world, because people didn't have any sort of easy to laugh at Archbishop Usher, who calculated that the world was created uh, on the 22nd of October, 4004 BC, which was a Saturday, um, quite near the beginning of the legal term. Um, And it's but, you know, it's absurd. On the other hand, what else was one supposed to do if the own, if you're doing history from documents and the oldest document you've got is the Old Testament? What are you going to do? So it was really after all the collecting of samples and the measuring and things, which only took you a certain way. And Hamilton says when he's walking up and down on Vesuvius and he says, you know, I can see lava which has become, which has become soil and things are growing in it. Now, that must have taken thousands of years. So everyone knows there's something wrong with the model, but they don't quite know how to get through it. Um, and in, in this great battle, as um, Charles Lyle, who was the great pioneering geologist, says that to free um, the past from Moses. Um, but it's very difficult to do. And it was Scroop measuring all these volcanoes, measuring the layers of lava, who began as he says, to take ever greater drafts on antiquity. You know, you have to keep going further back, further back, further back. And then Lyle, um, who, whose um, theory of uniformitarianism, as he called it, which was basically saying that what happened, floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, landslips, these things happened con- from time to time throughout time. So you're not looking for some great, as we would say, Big Bang. You're not looking for the flood. You're not looking for divine creation. You're looking for patterns that repeat over immensely long periods of time. Um, And he managed to publish, he chose very sensibly, because the implications of this, of course, from a religious point of view, were huge. But he very um, sensibly chose to publish it with John Murray, who was Walter Scott's publisher. And it came out as this extremely beautifully written, um, rather elegantly argued book, which was immensely popular. And it has since been described as a bit of a Trojan horse, but um, everyone embraced it. Um, and then, and Darwin, who read it as a young man, was hugely influenced. He said it alters the tone of one's mind. And so everybody then began to think about big time, as it were, um, and the age of the earth being immense. And then, of course, began to think what that might mean for religion. Ruskin has that very sad letter to his friend Ackland where he says, can't bear the sound of the geologist's hammers. I hear the clink at the end of every verse of the Bible. And of course for Darwin, that question of that that long time, it meant that, I mean, evolution 
evolution isn't possible in 6,000 years or rather 2,000 or you know 2,000 years whatever it is but if you're now looking at millions of years then that means that whole Darwin's views are, makes it possible I mean when did they start digging up dinosaurs it just now occurs to me to ask when were they well that was the other thing that that happened at the same time as as the 19th century goes on I mean there's a, there's a long sort of hiatus where everyone's just digging up collecting more and more samples of lava and um, drawing um, sections of, um, of of cold lava and the layers and everything. Um, and then you get a great acceleration. And part of the reason I think that um, Lyle's work was accepted so readily was because of the railways, oddly, because people in, they were digging these huge um, trenches and cut-throughs for the railways. And as the rocks were cut down, people saw fossils. Um and Liverpool had a set of fossils. They had some tortoise footprints, which they were very competitive with Manchester about, which had some tree fossils. Um, it, everybody became very... Disraeli's novel Tancred is very funny about this, with everybody getting in a terrible muddle about prehistory and fossils. But the, the general idea that there was this deep, deep time um, and that everything was much older than anyone thought and that therefore something like evolution. We're not yet at the point of suggesting that human beings have evolved, um, that we have animal ancestors who are different from us, but the idea that there is deep time and ancient animals which have become extinct but are still there in the rocks was something that people were quite ordinary everyday people were, were realising was true and it was quite exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Ruskin found it so sad because you could say that it actually, well, it's awe-inspiring, sublime in its way, and and liberating as well in terms of what it opens up about. And also, I don't know, I mean, the sense in which it puts everything in perspective, that if these volcanoes have been erupting for millions of years, then sort of the time since Pliny's just a blip. And that, I mean, you could either find that overwhelming and disheartening, or you could find it oddly comforting. Yes. I mean, I think for Ruskin, I mean, he was far too intelligent to be one of the people who resisted all this. He could see that it was true. But it was, you know, it was Matthew Arnold and Dover Beach. It was the idea that the faith that had sustained you was clearly based on something that could not be sustained. And I think to have your entire world view undermined is always unsettling. Um, and certainly for, for Paul Ruskin, whose mind was not always as well balanced. Um, he was he suffered terribly from what we call mental illness. But on the other hand, because the other side of when the, the, to one of Ruskin's last essays, The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, which for a long time was rather dismissed as you know a symptom of his kind of late ravings. But in fact, people who have since taken the weather measurements suggest that he was right. Um, and the, the storm cloud of the 19th century, the, the, the darkness of the last decade in meteorological terms was, was explicable. Yeah. And that science replacing religion as an explanatory framework, I mean, not in terms of, I mean, obviously it didn't replace religion in people's church going lives and so on, but as an explanatory framework for why the world is as it is or that, that the world is as it is, had a almost sort of clunkingly symbolic form on on the slopes of Vesuvius in terms of what happened to the um, the Hermitage. Because what did happen to the Hermitage? Well, the Hermitage um, was replaced by the first observatory. 
Um, so that was, yes, a kind of um, whether it was in any way, I don't know, intended to be um, a statement of that sort. I don't suppose it was. I think there were probably a limited number of places where you could build something that would stand up on the slopes of Vesuvius. And indeed, it took them a very long time to, to build it. It was sort of first opened in 1841 um, and finally came into operation in 1848, which of course then there was a year of more revolutions all over Europe. But yes, I mean, from then onwards, the um, the two things were separate. And of course, tourists still went to Vesuvius as, tur as tourists still do. But um, as a phenomenon, it had been captured really by science and geology. Rosemary Hill, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Rosemary's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, which is dated the 5th of October, along with Lorna Finlayson on animal liberation, Colin Burrow on George Orwell, and Michael Dobson on grottos. Subscribers to the paper can read all that and more from the current issue and from the archive of everything the LRB has ever published since 1979, including more than 100 pieces by Rosemary Hill. To subscribe, if you don't already, go to lrb.me forward slash subscribe or click in the link in the podcast description. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. Listener.